I thought, fantastic. I love the concept of working our way through a whole book because I know that in that process, what we're going to do is come across things that we wouldn't normally preach on, stuff that we would normally avoid or wouldn't perhaps get enough of a Guernsey to, to make a feature of a sermon. Then when I was asked to preach today, I just realised how hard it is to actually take a whole chapter and get lumped with a whole lot of things that you'd perhaps like to avoid (laughs) and not be able to just go, hey, this is the core of my message, but rather have to go, oh, I've got to deal with this and I've got to deal with that and I've got to come through. And so today what we're going to do is basically do a survey, you know, (laughs) A run through the chapter and just pick up the gems on the way. And um, so, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting. And um, what I wanted to do is just to reflect for a few moments on last week's sermon where we looked at the identity. And um, what we're looking at here today, we need to remember that it's coming from Jesus And what's his identity? What's his purpose and what's he wanting to do for us? His identity is the son of the living God, the God of love, the creator God, who's wanting to speak life and blessing into our lives. So from that place of blessing, Jesus gives us some boundaries in life. And he says, if you want to receive blessing, walk along the path inside these boundaries. Because outside of these boundaries comes burden. And that's the heart of which Jesus is coming from. So in Mark 10, this week, Mark 10 was on a billboard and made the news. This sign is in Queensland and it's been ordered to be pulled down because it's too political, too inappropriate. And this is where we start. (laughs) Now, one of the things I wanted to do is actually take the take the advantage of actually we're working through the whole chapter. So let's read the chapter together. And um, me and public reading is sort of like, hmm. So what I'm going to do is say, who likes reading? (laughs) Who likes reading to a group and a crowd? Come on, there's more than Reuben. (laughs) I'm going to need some help. Come on. We're going to get involved together. So... We've got a volunteer down the front. We're going to do a few different ones through. So Sophie's up first. All right. Am I reading the whole lot? You read the whole lot, Uh, yeah. Is it Capernaum? Okay. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question, What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. 
He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts, but God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. So this is the first of three stories that we find in Mark 10. And Mark 10 is a bit of a turning point of the whole of the book of Mark in that we will find a few lasts as Jesus turns towards Jerusalem. And so we've got a series of these three stories, and this is the first one. Now, Jesus has been teaching, and this is the Q&A time at the end. I'm glad his Q&A is not quite like our Q&A. But what Jesus does here is quite unexpected. And when you get the, the sort of cultural setting of what's going on, you'll see how unexpected it is. And this is, I suppose, one of those things about these stories that in some ways frustrates me is that the disciples don't seem to get some, some of these things that are quite straightforward. That sort of frustrates me at times, but it encourages me at times because I go, well, I don't quite get it sometimes either. And um, so stuck between those places. But what Jesus does here is he has the Pharisees come to him and instead of doing what's expected of going, well, the law says, and my position is, he goes, ha what do you think? What does Moses command about this? And the Pharisees tell him. And then if you're playing by the rules... He would then perhaps go back to the law and and speak to them out of the law about what they're seeing is right or wrong and and confirm or or change what they're thinking. Instead, Jesus doesn't go back to the law. What he's doing here is he goes, actually, let's not talk about the train wreck of divorce. You know, let's not talk about marriage in the terms of what do we do when it's all falling apart. Let's actually redefine what marriage is about. Sounds rather familiar of our culture at the moment. Let's redefine marriage because it doesn't quite suit. The issue was back then that the marriage was very, very, had come to a place where it had been very much male-centred. You had... The man who was the patriarch of the family, who had his nice little subservient wife that was there to serve him, to propagate the family name. And what Jesus does is he goes, let's not look at the law, let's look at marriage. Let's set a whole new blueprint of what marriage should look like rather than focus on divorce. So he goes to Genesis. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, 
Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Then God looked over all that he made and he saw that it was very good. And out of this context of taking a male created in God's image and a female created in God's image. Jesus says, God unites them together to become one. It's not about the guy being up here and the, and the woman just to be along to propagate his name and bear children. He completely upends their worldview of marriage and lays out a new blueprint and says that it's about these two being united into one. But these two are created in in God's image for the purpose of reflecting of, of who God is. And the marriage union then enables them to become this one that is able to then be fruitful and multiply as was intended. It allows them to create in their image, being a greater reflection of God who is the creator who creates in his image. Then he pulls the, uh, the disciples aside and, and, and they're all struggling with it a bit, obviously banding it around and going, but he didn't even really answer their question. And so he says to them, guys, you don't get it. I was showing you what marriage is meant to be. It's not meant to be about having a divorce where a man finds another woman and trades trades the wife he's got in and takes another. It's not about women finding another guy and trading them in and finding another and marrying them. It's about being this one thing that God has created to reflect his image. That is where the blessing flows. Now, the good news about this is if you find yourself in that place, this is not the only teaching on divorce and what God's got. And it comes from a place where God's saying, I want blessing in your life. There's some encouragement. Nowhere in the Bible, not one occurrence is there of somebody asking God genuinely for forgiveness and not being received. Not one. So if you're finding yourself on the wrong side of blessing, bow your knee, go to the Lord and ask for him to redeem your situation because our God is a redeemer God. He takes the mess and he transforms it and makes it into something new. But that's not his first plan. So then, how does that all relate to same-sex marriage? How does that relate to where we're at right now and looking at marriage? Well, we're on the fast track, aren't we? (laughs) We're on the survey through the whole book, so we're going to move on. But I think it's fairly evident that God has a formula for where he want, how he wants to pour blessing into our lives, how he wants us to reflect 
his image in this world. Radio, need another volunteer. Yeah, go, Ruben. Can you come up and grab a microphone? Or take one back there? One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded them and, uh, and the parents um, for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of the kingdom of God, like a child, will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. This little story, I think, buckles really well to the next story. So all I'm going to do is say the sort of context that this, this was set in was that children, by and largely, or childhood was by and largely seen as this inconvenient sort of stage that the kids have um, between birth and, and when they start becoming productive, useful adults, which was the age of 13. Um, so the disciples, you know, they weren't big bad guys. They were just doing what was culturally... Uh, probably appropriate is, come on, these kids, just get them out of the way, you know. Um, And all good mums want their kids blessed, so, you know, why wouldn't you um, push in a little? But it's a little bit different to our setting. It wasn't just that uh, that the disciples were these bad guys. Um, The next story leads into uh, the rich man. I'm going to read the first part of this and then I'll get somebody to read the second part. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man running ran up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asks. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honour your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing that you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Another volunteer? Come on. Somebody, they're... Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. So these two stories sit buckled together. How do I enter the kingdom of God? How do I have eternal life? On one hand, you have these little babies that are in that time of life where it's just essential, but hopefully at some stage they'll grow up. They have nothing to offer effectively. And you have this rich man. And Jesus doesn't call him a hypocrite when he, when he gives his report card of, of how he's been living his life. So he is what we would genuinely call a good man. In the cultural setting, as a Jew, to live by the law, an honourable life, was what it was to be right with God. To be rich was evidence of the fact that God was actually blessing him. So here's this man who's supposedly the model Jew. And Jesus says, but you lack. Here's these babies that have nothing. And Jesus says, they're the ones getting the kingdom. So no wonder the poor disciples go, who in the world can be saved then? Because I'm an adult, I can't go back to being a baby. I've been trying to live a good life. I've been living by the law. I've been giving up my stuff for you. Who can be saved? Now, this story of the camel and the eye of the needle. There's been all sorts of uh, different ways to try and juggle that, to try and go. But, you know, telling rich people that they can't be saved is not acceptable. We have to find a way around it. Maybe, maybe the word camel should be retranslated um, more appropriately to rope. Still the same problem. <laughs> maybe, maybe the eye of the needle, maybe that's that gate up in, in Jerusalem's wall, you know, and the camels get down and wiggle their way through. There's no evidence of there ever being a gate. What Jesus is saying is plain and simple. It is impossible 
for you to get into the kingdom. At the time where you are self-reliant, like the rich man, if you're not prepared to put it all aside and come follow me, come follow Jesus, you are in in an impossible place. It takes a miracle to resolve this problem. And these disciples have been walking with Jesus, seeing him do miracle after miracle after miracle. And they still haven't quite ticked in their head that that miracle that needs to take place for them to be able to enter into the kingdom is actually what, what the journey to Jerusalem is all about. That the God of miracles is going to do the miracle that makes it possible for us to do the impossible, to be acceptable to a perfect and whole God who accepts nothing but perfection. And in that, Peter cries out and says, but I've given up all this stuff. And this is a passage that somewhat gets pulled into all sorts of shapes by, by people wanting to say, oh, it's about prosperity. You know, you give up a house for my ministry, give it to me and God will give you a hundred houses. He'll bless you here and now. What this is more reflective of is the hundredfold increase. Have we seen that somewhere else in our stories? Yeah, just back a few stories ago, we had the sower and the seed. And where did, the, where did you get a hundredfold increase? It was from the good soil. So what Jesus is actually saying to Pete, Peter here is, Pete, it's okay, mate. You're the good soil. For the things that you've given up for the sake of my kingdom, I'm bringing a good harvest. But be aware, this is not a life of utopia. Did you see in amongst all the things, all the good things that are going to be poured out in a hundredfold? There happens to be persecution listed there. Hang on a second. (laughs) I don't know that I really want to sign up for that. But that is one of the traits of the kingdom. If you're going to genuinely walk in the ways of Jesus, it's not a life of utopia. It's not a life of, of purely just abundance all the time. But you'll have to walk the path of persecution because that's the path that Jesus walks. Not such a simple word, is it? We go on to our next story, which is actually the real turning point now where Jesus turns to Jerusalem. And in this context of saying there's a different economy going on here. The rich can't get in without a miracle. The poor can't get in without a miracle. You have to be like a baby. Jesus then, for his final time, predicts his death. Got another volunteer to read this one out for us? 
Yeah, chuck it back a couple of rows. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. So this is the third time that Jesus predicts his death. This time, there's a whole lot more detail. It's really clear what's going to take place. And so what do you expect to happen? What would you do if you're one of the disciples? And this is what Jesus has just said that they're heading to Jerusalem for. Guess what happens? The exact same thing that happened the other two times, which was there was a jostling that took place. Who gets to be next to Jesus? Who gets to be... Um, you know, taken along with him into the place of his glory, right? It must be the most selective hearing that has ever been demonstrated. I'm going to get flogged and killed. And the disciples say, can I come too? (laughs) Can I be on your left and on your right? Can I be in that space where you... I, I can't quite get my head around quite how they so selectively hear what Jesus is saying. All they hear is that he's going to Jerusalem to be taken into a place of honour. He's taking up his role as Messiah. You know, the grandeur and the glory of who he is is going to be shown to everyone. That's what they're hearing out of these words of, I'm going to be flogged and killed. (laughs) So let's read on. Jesus teaches about serving others. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favour. What is your request? he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honour next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptised with the baptism of suffering I must be baptised with? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Then Jesus told them, You will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptised with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right way to say who will sit on my right or on my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know whether I would have uh, quite responded like Jesus if I was in his shoes. I, I think I would have been more of the indignant disciples. Being, for my namesake, Peter. I mean, you've got James and John and Peter. We've seen time and time again them being the inner circle. And here's James and John, the two brothers the sons of thunder, going, yes, we can do it all. We'll, we'll sneak off and we'll get the left and right with Jesus. What do you reckon Pete's feeling on all of this would be? You know, it's not that I'm one of the 12. I'm one of the, I'm one of the three. And these guys are, are, are trying to stooge me out of something here. But Jesus just lovingly corrects them and says, this is not the economy of the kingdom. This is not the sort of king, this is not the sort of leader that I am. This is not the way things work in my kingdom. Even I come to serve. And he completes his, uh, his prediction of, of what he's going to Jerusalem for. My life will be given as a ransom for many that's what it is. It's a call of discipleship, to give up your life as a servant for others. That is the path of what it is to be a disciple. So now that Jesus turns and his eyes are for Jerusalem, the mission is clear. The terms of the kingdom spelt out that they are working on a completely different framework to what this world works on. He knows his mission. He's going to lay down his life for a ransom for many. And they leave Jericho. And we have this one last healing story. This is the final healing story of the book of Mark. It says, then they, when they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting on, beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet. Many of the people yelled at him. But that, then he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. 
Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, Go, for your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see. And he followed Jesus down the road. It's interesting. In that place of his eyes set on the mission, as we go out of town from Jericho up to Jerusalem, it's a 20-mile leg, 30-something kilometres, 3,500 feet elevation. They're quite literally going up to Jerusalem. You find on the outside of town, on the side of the road, where do you put your trash? You take your trash and you chuck it out of town and on the side of the road. They find this man, Bartimaeus. It's the only time in the book of Mark that the name is given to somebody who is healed. So there's this warmth to this story. That this man who is nobody is given a name. This man who is on the outer, not even on the road, he's not going somewhere, he's, he's just thrown to the side. He's told to shut up, be quiet, we don't want to hear from you. You're rubbish, you're trash. He calls out, Jesus, son of David. Jesus, son of David, you are the Messiah. You are the one in the line of... David. And Jesus hears this. And not even his mission and his goal that he's focused on is so important that he, that he wouldn't stop. He stops. He puts that on hold because this man is calling. What a picture of discipleship that is. That no matter what it is that God's called you to, no matter how important what it is that you're doing and where you're going in life is, is that those who are on the fringe and the outer that are calling to know Jesus deserve you to stop as Jesus stopped. And Jesus calls him over. And this man says, and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus doesn't force anything on him. Doesn't have any presumptions of him. I mean, surely there's a blind man coming into you and you can heal him from his blindness. It's pretty blunt, blunt pretty obvious what you would want to do for him. But he says... Volunteer what it is that you're asking for. And he says, Rabbi. Now the term here, the way he says Rabbi, 
is not just teacher, which is what rabbi means. The, the enunciation that he uses here is a very special way that you would say this. And it would be in a prayer when you're talking to God and saying, Teacher God, teach me. Lord God, teach me, is how Bartimaeus addresses Jesus. I want to see. So no wonder Jesus can just say, your faith has, made, has healed you. But I love the way that this finishes off. He followed Jesus down the road. Throughout the book of Mark, the true meaning of the trueness of discipleship is expressed in this expression of following Jesus on the road. So here you find Jesus stops and finds Bartimaeus, the trash that's been thrown out, the nobody, and liberates him into a place of discipleship. So I've got a question for you as we come to an end. We've we've seen a whole lot of different characters through this chapter. If you were one of them, who are you? It's not rhetorical. Think about it. Who are you? Are you one of the Pharisees? Are you a disciple? Are you a Bartimaeus? Are you one of the children? Or are you the rich man? Struggling to put stuff aside. Figured it out yet? How does Jesus interact with you? Is there stuff to deal with in where you're at? I want to be the camel. (laughs) Stick me through the eye of the needle. I want to see a miracle. I love that part of of what it is to be part of the kingdom. To see miracles at work. To bring glory to God. I love the way that the kingdom so often says... You're over here on the side, on the outer. Let me pull you in. But I fear that often I'm like the rich man. That I let my stuff get in the way between me and him. And I hang on for it for too long before I'm prepared to put it down and allow him to do yet another miracle in my life. This morning I think God wants to be a God of miracles. God wants to be a God who reaches out to the lost and lonely, to those that are ostracised and off to the side, those who have perhaps distorted their marriage into something it's not meant to be, those that are struggling with sin, 
And God says, I want to see blessing flow in your life. And that takes a miracle. That takes you laying the stuff aside, allowing that yourself to move to a place where that blessing can flow and for that miracle to flow of God's love and his healing, his transformation and his renewal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are a God of miracles. We thank you that you have done the impossible, that the gap between us and you has been paid for, that your son went to the cross to pay the ransom for us. And Lord, we just thank you that you're a loving God who wants to see blessing flow in our lives. I just ask that that you would put your finger on those things that needs your healing touch today. Help us to move from a place of confusion that perhaps the disciples were often in and move to a place where We may be the blind man, but we can see clearer than any else. Lord, where we haven't bowed our knee to you, help us not to be like the rich man and walk away downhearted. But help us to... uh, to be able to step into those things that you have for us. Help us to take that gift of righteousness and to bear it well, to be the image of our creator God in this world. 